This is Graphic Policy Radio, where comics and politics meet. Which means we are like the X-Men comics, where comics and politics also meet. That's right. Welcome to Krakoa. We're back on X-Men comics today. Uh, I am your host, Elon Eleven, a.k.a. Twitter's Elana Brooklyn. And today we'll be talking about one of the best series from the recent X-Men relaunch, Marauders, by writer Gary Dugan and artists including Matteo Lali, Stefano Caselli, Michelle Bandy, and others. If X-Force is the X-Men's CIA, then the Marauders are its pirates, or technically the Hellfire Trading Company, as it's called in the story. According to the uh, diegetic back matter, let's say, the Hellfire Trading Company is responsible for distributing Krakoa's pharmaceuticals to friendly nations and smuggling mutants out of unfriendly ones. Um, and that's been sort of the, the main log line for what uh, this particular series is focused on. It's the Hellfire Trading Company-focused book from the X-Men relaunch. It's centered on a perpetually precocious, hardworking, responsible student, then teacher of the X-Men, Kitty Pride. Wait, no, sorry, Kate Pride. That's right, she's Kate Pride now, officially, and Kate Pride is finally coming out in the adult name. Oof, maybe not quite coming out in every way. Uh, she is finally stealing a boat getting drunk on Wolverine's stash, and being the pirate-slash-liberator of mutants everywhere, the Red Queen of the new Hellfire Club, established to end oppression rather than step on people with fetish heels like the old Hellfire Club. And joining me to have a deep dive into this series are... Chingy L. Gay is a writer, comedian, and critically acclaimed ex-girlfriend. She writes about queer identity, nerd shit, and her weird sex life, and has been featured at MTV News, Out Magazine, Jezebel, Autostraddle, and Kotaku. Welcome back, Chingy. Hi, it's me, Howdy. Thank you for having me on again. Yeah, always good to hear your voice. And joining me for the first time is Danny Kinney. Danny is a sensitivity reader at Salt and Sage Books, a trans and intersex educator and policy consult. They also are a writer at Graphic Policy, and women write about comics, where they've authored works such as Hold Fast, Marauders, and the Anti-Fascist Model, New Intersections, Krakoa and the Queer Body Politic, and Subterranean Mutant Semiotics, Morlocks, X-Factor, and the Privilege of Passing. And yes, they know they take the mutant metaphor a little too seriously. Well, this is the podcast for that, folks. Welcome to the show, Danny. Thank you. I am delighted to be joining you both to talk about Talk about Marauders. Yeah, I feel like Marauders is the X book that has been the most exciting for me. Like when things come out, that's always the one I jump to first with the most enthusiasm. And um, I've had so many queer feelings about it in particular. I, I like began to write an essay called Marauders colon be queer do crimes. And then I realized I don't have time. So yes. this podcast is like subtitled Marauders, colon, Be Queer, Do Crimes. Um, oh, yeah. And so uh, why why do you guys like this series so much? We're going to give people a quick spoiler-free introduction to why we like it before we jump into the super spoilery, nerding into the details part of the show. Well, I mean, it is a very like queer, I, I wouldn't even call it, I mean, I guess it's technically subtextual, but it's not that subtextual. It's just like very queer book with, great action and a pretty original premise to me i mean swashbuckling mm -hmm. mutants uh it adds a lot to the dawn of x uh continuum that i've really enjoyed um yeah uh kate pride and a bunch of mutants doing international affairs on a pirate ship what's not to love perfectly well described 
Yeah, um, I mean, I so I'll be honest. I came to Marauders because at the time that Dawn of X launched, uh, we were very broke in this house, and I couldn't actually afford to like get a lot of the line. But the cover of Marauders One was just like so fucking punk, and like it's just <laughs> it's just all of the characters just posted up in this like really hardcore like band pick, and it is. It is such the tone of that book, and it was just, it was so nice to see Kate Pride written this way. I think, like, mm-hmm. that's probably my biggest takeaway is just, like, this is, this is Kate Pride finally stepping out of the, like, shadowy corners of every, like, straight white cis dude writing her as, like, their self-insert high school girlfriend, and, like, yeah, the premise is just, it's amazing. It's its just a, a fantastically refreshing book for, for all of what Dawn of X is. I mean, and, the, and, and also, like, it's still being written by, I believe, like, a cis white guy. But it doesn't fall into the, as you said, like, this is our high school girlfriend traps that has just been so consistently plaguing the character. And that, open, that first cover of Kitty you know, with the big red scarf, like basically she's wearing like a red keffiyeh. Yeah. Like on so, the, yes. Yeah. <laughs> with a, with like a broken nose and a black eye and being like, hello, fuck you. And like Iceman being on the cover, looking super sassy gay. Like that's, that's a great introduction. Like folks, if you don't know if you're into this, just like look at the first cover of Marauders and be like, oh, okay. Yeah. I feel like the covers have all like, there have been some straight up like action comic covers, but like a lot of them have been very in your face and punk and swaggy in a way that Mm -hmm. I don't often see in like that many covers. Like it has a motif or like a theme to them. And it's like very much the feel of the book. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that issue what eight has like Callisto on the cover looking as dyke as she ever has. I was about to say that's my favorite cover. I think it's number seven. Yeah. Seven. Yeah. That's oh, so good. It's so that, that cover in particular, I think like, I mean, first off, like all of the covers for this series have been so out of the norm, I think for just like some of the like visual semiotics of Dawn of X where this like, like this X Men team fucks, <laughs> like in, a, <laughs> in like a really amazing way. We're just like, yeah, like, like that cover of Callisto right then and there, like, says everything. And like that is shorthand for Callisto's history within the X Men. It's just like, just yeah, like Knives Out, like that yeah. gr- that grin from behind those two stilettos is just like, ugh. So good. You're telling me these knives are out? Oh, the- <laughs> <laughs> They're just out? They're just out. Two of them. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, so I would definitely say, like, also, importantly, if you're listening to this and saying, isn't it a little fucked up that the superhero team is calling itself the Marauders, who were, like, people who killed the Morlocks in the tunnels in the X-Men, you know, older comics and you know, in the 80s and 90s, the comic recognizes this and addresses it on page. So don't let that be a barrier. Yeah, and I also think it's like, I mean, I'm excited that Callisto is in Marauders for probably entirely apparent reasons for anyone mm-hmm. who follows my Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. But I think like one of the biggest things is when Marauders 
was announced, I was like, ooh, I I was like writing about the Mutant Massacre at that point, and I was like really salty at first. I was like, are you are we sure this is like the move for a book about this like new paradigm? And then like I mean, A, one issue, and it's clearly like something that's being reclaimed. And it's nice to have Callisto kind of have the page space to also work that out and mm-hmm. to like say say on her own like yeah i'm not i'm not holding this against kate like i i think that's just nice to like really continue to speak to the way that dawn of x has just like constantly reframed everything about continuity so far so there you have it folks we really love marauders (laughs) if you're not reading it get on it and then catch up and then join us as we enter the entirely spoiler-laden deep dive into the series right now. Okay. You guys got it? Okay, here we are. Um, so the opening of book one is really what just grabbed me is, you know, when Krakoa is announced, um, we basically, every mutant is supposed to be able to be able to go there. Um, everyone is supposed to be able to get there. And I, if you've listened to Graphic Policy Radio's earlier coverage of, you know, the Hick, of Hickman X-Men and Dawn of X, you'll know that I was immediately concerned about questions of like, who gets to decide who gets to be on Krakoa, who gets to decide who counts. And here we have Kitty Pride, who continues to be subtextually bisexual, femme-presenting woman, tries to walk into Krakoa and gets a black eye as she smacks into the door. Like, I... You know, this is Krakoa supposed to be the place for all mutants to be safe and accepted. And I was like, this is such an amazing metaphor. No idea if it's intentional or not, frankly, for how bisexual people are gatekept from dominant gay and lesbian communities. And that was just like that that moment just grabbed me. And the comics being aware that there is still a question of, yeah, like who does get to decide who's part of the community, who gets to decide who counts. And um, the first person that she sees when she finally gets to Krakoa by boat is like Bobby, who's like the straight, attractive white gay guy who just waltzes through the gates. And it's like, yep, he got in. It's all good. So I felt like this was perhaps the comic that might begin to explore the questions of who is excluded and how and who who has to um, fight for space, etc. Did Did any folks have thoughts about like Kitty not being able to just get in for free? Yeah, yeah I think. Uh, I think I think this and Hellions are really the major X books right now that are like exploring who belongs and why and like as Krico is supposed to be for all mutants and there's some complications to that with even just Sinister on the council uh, but like how people get to go there and this book explores who's not being allowed by their own countries to go to Krakoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No. I. I think one thing that's really interesting is that it's because of what we've seen of people trying to pass through Kirkoan Gate so far. Um, it's interesting that the gate doesn't just passively exclude uh, Kate. It it firmly rejects it. Like there is a contact and a, a there is a collision that is like. Krakoa forcefully rejecting Kate. Like we've seen Franklin Richards, who, you know, in um, Fantastic Four uh, versus X-Men, you know, Franklin just runs straight through it as though there's no gate there. 
this is like a almost like a conscious rejection and i think like yeah it's interesting that like comparison to like how that's handling how that's being handled in hellions as well and i think that that's why hellions and marauders really stand out as like my two favorite books of dawn of x because you know krakoa has a lot of it has a lot of gaps in what it can and cannot account for and i'm interested in the stories that are being told in those two books in that specific way and like investigating you know, here's this island utopia, but like, who isn't welcome? Like, who don't we mm-hmm. see? Like, I think, yeah, I, that right then and there, like those first few pages really, I think they set the tone for the, the series and give readers kind of like that understanding, like this book is not exactly going to be, like, if you want to just feel great about Krakoa, maybe don't read Marauders. Like, right, right. Marauders will challenge uh, the kind of queer utopia that's being built up um in fan discourse and it's it's looking at Krakoa in a really sober way I think that's interesting yeah I mean those opening pages too like it does look at it in a sober way but also like those pages are almost like slapstick in nature like (laughs) it it is literally she runs into a wall which is funny because like you said Franklin just walked through it and like the idea of Kate Pride not being able to walk through something is comical (laughs) in nature right like it's funny yeah, her whole thing her is she can thing. walk through anything. Yeah. And the one thing that every mutant can walk through. Yeah. I think one thing is like, I definitely feel like there's some people who are really interested in trying to figure out like, what is the in-world reason for this problem? Is it deliberate? And I'm just like, I don't care. This is such a good metaphor. <laughs> like, that's all. I just want to really lean into it. Um, one of the things that also really worked for me, I mean, Bishop is great in this comic, period. But Bishop has this moment where he and Kitty are on a job and he just says it aside. Wait, hey, so they still haven't figured out why you can't enter, use the Krakoa gates? And she's like, no, but, you know, it's not super important for them. They have other things to deal with. It's fine. And like the way she just sort of says, like, I don't want people to worry about me. I don't want to get in the way. I don't want to like exert my privilege to make people address my problem was also just like so bisexual. <laughs> and that and that Bishop was the one who was like, hey, maybe like they should look after you was also felt very much like one like mar- one person who has a love who's marginalized along lines that aren't just being a mutant talking to another person who's marginalized along lines that aren't just being a mutant. I mean, you know? Bishop, Bishop's history of marginalization. I mean, he has an M carved into his eye because he's from a future where that's a thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like he understands the concept of marginalization and how it works. Uh, yeah. Uh, I was like, do I have some, I, I lost my thought. I mean, he throughout the comic, he challenges the, the, you know, the lots of characters assumptions. Um, And, you know, he's the one who's like, wait, why does the trading company need a red queen? Like, why, why is there a hellfire trading club? Like, like, why does a corporation? Oh, you're a corporation. Why does a corporation have a queen? I was like, yeah, you ask those questions. I mean, I've been asking them too, right? Yeah. I also feel like this bishop is very much informed by Vita's work in Prisoner X, where I think... Mm. Um, I still don't know if, if, I still don't know if he has his memories. I don't know if everyone kept their memories of what they experienced in the events of Age of X-Men, but at least I feel like that characterization of, of Bishop really feels like a consistent thread. And like, that's been a relationship 
there's a few relationships in this book that I've really enjoyed seeing kind of get more page time. But I think like Bishop has a very particular history mm-hmm. and one that is very, very much defined by the like within a community outside of a community kind of uh, relationship where like he has always been a, he's been inside and out of the X-Men's kind of broader mutant community in a lot of different ways. And I think he, him relating to Kate and the way that he does is a very interesting kind of relationship to see unfold where like he calls into question so many things that I think a lot of people who are, have been kind of just bought into Xavier's dream in a different way very early on, maybe are less critical of. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, he's not like, he has always been a mutant, but he's not from their timeline. So he has a very different view of mutant culture and like what it means to be a mutant. But in this world, like the mutant community is really, I think the only community he cares about. Uh, So it's really interesting and wanting to see him wanting to see it be its best is great. Uh, Especially after some bad characterization a while ago. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. That's a whole whole podcast right there. It's just like, (laughs) sometimes I think about like, I think if Bishop were, if, if sometimes I think about if characters like Bishop were introduced now, how much better off their characterizations would be. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm, I'm writing right now about like mutant justice and like what that looks like. And like, who's redeemable versus who's irredeemable. And I remember seeing so many takes about Bishop being an irredeemable character for so many things. And it's like, you just, you have to have a more meta textual understanding of like who was writing these characters yeah, in, their, yeah. in their darker moments. They're not actually people. They're, right. they're characters. Yes. Surprise, yes. surprise to many of the fans, but these are comic books. <laughs> But this is right. But that is such a good point. Well, one, I cannot wait to read your piece. But two, like when people are, you know, complaining about like, well, you know, Kitty isn't like out as like a bisexual character. Like that's not her choice. She's not a person. That is the choice of the publishers. Yeah. Um, And they've they've let her be more um, subtextually queer in this series than, you know, a lot of other ones have been like she has you get to see her like flirting with Emma Frost, which is uh, super complicated, but amazing. Yeah. I, I think well, we can just agree. Like K- K- Kate's type is guys named Peter and scary older blonde women. Yep. Except for that one <laughs> scary younger blonde woman. But like, it's pretty much like, so I was like, well, of course they're going to flirt. Like I never thought about that because, you know, male writers had like, posited them as like fighting good girl bad girl madonna and horse shit that was like really fucking terrible and then here like they talk about why they appreciate each other and respect each other and they also super freaking flirt and like it's hot like it's actually hot yeah, yeah. but it's also i think and that that gets me to something on, on marauders that i think i really appreciate about emma is everything about the way that emma is coded throughout marauders is it feels like a really perfect distillation of what Emma should and will represent moving forward. And I think like, Mm. like even just now to the art, which like gives you a like sexy and sexualized Emma without like 24 seven, having her in the same, like I'm going to wear my underwear out 
every single place and I'm never <laughs> going to change my costume once. And it's just like the art finds a way to like make a like character sexual and like own their sexuality in a way that isn't like gratuitous or fan service and like feels really authentic. So mm-hmm. I think that like, A, that's just, that's just nice to see that like this Emma is being written just a little bit more thoughtfully. And like, she is getting like gratuitously sexy moments in a way that like sometimes are much more positive to see because the characterization yeah. around Emma is not as troublesome. Um, but to go yeah. back to that, like that kiss page, like I am, I really dislike J- Joss Whedon. Um, <laughs> it's just the bull that band <laughs> really? off right now. Oh, okay. Hmm. I, I, <laughs> there are some things that he, his work on X-Men did that I really appreciate, but I think when I think about what runs crystallize the like kind of adversarial relationship between Kate and Emma, I always come back to Whedon. And I think like all of the damage that was done by Joss Whedon between those two characters is entirely resolved in that one page where they're just talking about, you know, like I think Kate says, like, I kind of wish that I had followed you instead mm-hmm. of oh, Xavier. Man. And just like and yeah, no, it's just, it's such a tender scene and it like, er, it entirely paints over some of the more problematic characterizations between those two. I like that it's tenderly horny. Uh, <laughs> yes! Because, because Emma's response is, I was a much younger woman then, I would have utterly destroyed you. And I'm yep. like, yeah, I agree that uh, Emma's characterization has been great all throughout this in a way it hasn't been through, for a long time. I mean... Hickman definitely, like, I know he's not the writer, but he is the head of X. And, like, mm-hmm. he was saying even before this that, like, Emma is one of his favorite characters and he wanted to do right by her. And I feel like Dawn of X has done very well by Emma Frost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. She's definitely, I wouldn't even call her the deuteragonist. I'd say she's co-protagonist because, like, I mean, lately there haven't been books that uh, Kate's even been in since we're getting into spoilers. Uh, like, and she still takes up most of the pages. Like, I love that this is basically, like, it was advertised more as a Kate book because she's a more popular character, but it is really a dual Kate and Emma book, which is something I never thought we would get. Yeah, and one that's not about them, like, fighting with each other. It's actually about them talking about different kinds of leadership. And, like, I also just loved this interaction between Emma and Storm after after Kate, you know, real spoilers begin now, kitties. After Kate dies, albeit probably temporarily, we can get to that in a minute, yeah. um, when they are fighting is like this amazing, I think it's the best scene between Emma and Storm ever, probably, right? And um, the way they're like processing their emotions at each other is so powerful, um, and the the paneling on it is really good. Oh, God, who's the artist on that particular one? I want to say it's... Um, that would be, I think, Caselli's on pencils, maybe? Yeah, I think Caselli's on that one. Yeah. The way he's paneling that page and their interactions is just pitch perfect for having it be tense, but, like, and then, like, having them kind of come together. Um I mean, Storm is amazing in this book, too, with the exception of the fact that the colorist made her white for the first few issues. Jesus. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't even understand. It's like one thing if, if like, somebody doesn't know that Roberto da Costa is 
like dark brown Afro cube, like Afro Latinx, like then like maybe that's because you're new here. But if you don't know that Storm is black, then like I, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, it was um, Federico Glee for the first few ones, right? And then I think it switched over uh, somewhat recently because that was one of the larger criticisms it was getting that it didn't know how to light or draw it or not draw, but like light or color its black characters. Yeah. It's so, so over the top bad. I Comics are always lightening up black characters, but I don't think I'd ever seen one as extreme as the first two issues of Marauders Head Storm. Meanwhile, the characterization of her is amazing. And I love the yeah. little piece they have in her hair, like the little zigzag thing totally yeah. reminds me of Jack Kirby stuff. So, of course, I like it. Yeah. Storm and the, I mean, so this this comic was generous enough to give us a panel of Storm stabbing um, a fascist in a mecha suit directly in the eye socket. Uh, mm-hmm. So thank you to to the folks behind that one, because that was a. That that made twenty twenty worth it for that image almost. <laughs> uh, but I yeah I really I will say like there's no character who's been on the Marauders team so far that I have felt was a really weak link like even even Pyro like oh I, yeah I, the I care about Pyro <laughs> yeah Pyro has a lot of fun himbo energy in general yes. I, but the action in this comic like I don't. I can't think of another book on the line right now. That given I haven't uh, caught up with X Force, that uh, another book on the line that has such iconic action sequences that I'm like, like I can't get out of my head. Like Iceman cracking off one of their arms. Oh uh, yes. <laughs> Storm stabbing a fascist mecha in the eye. Uh, the first issue, all of Kate, but especially when she phased a gun through a man's oh, yeah. leg. Like, it's been, like, very gratuitous and very memorable and, like, good. I've loved it. Yeah, and it's interesting because, like, mute, I, we've seen all of these mutants use their powers so many times before, but I have also noticed that, like, there are things in each of their... In each of the way that the characters are getting to use their abilities um, in this series that are just, like, really exciting and unique. Like, Kate phases one boat through another on a on a split second decision and it's like i think sometimes we take for granted that like you know mutants have these kind of awesome powers and i think i think house of x and powers of x really politicized mutation in a exciting and wonderful way but i'm Mm -hmm. also glad to see that like mutants are getting to just like do really cool shit with their powers like I think it was House of or uh, Marauders Six, where it's just like it opens in media res with like Pyro just laying down a fountain of fire, and just the visuals that have come from this book are just they're fantastic. Um, if folks want to get some more detailed about the whole like storm getting whitewashed in this, uh, there was a really good piece on women write about comics called the X-Men's dissipating storm. So give that one a look, really good essay. Um, yeah, I think the violence has been super cathartic and like geared to us and creative. I think, I mean, I love that also when, when storm is like fighting the the supremacist she's like is this a vibranium billy this is mine now yeah so it's like connecting it back to her africanness too like yeah yeah this is just like a really it's a really thoughtful series and i think i think it's 
it's a set of characters that I don't. I individually, I feel like they've all had really good interactions, but I haven't seen a team that has this sort of interpersonal history mm-hmm. um, in Dawn of X, apart from like maybe. Yeah, that's not true. I think <laughs> I'm just I'm just like very excited about these specific characters, given all of their individual histories and like how how it just enhances everything you already know and like pulls things back up from continuity that like are kind of being lost, I think, along the way in some of the other books that feature these characters. Mm. Right, right. It's very deliberate about those relationships and addressing pieces of people's past. Like there's an amazing confrontation between Callisto and Storm. Exactly what I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. um, Tell me about that, Chingy. Oh, I just, uh, everything about Callisto in this comic has made me so, so happy. Uh, Every scene she's in, I like that she gets to be fun in this comic. Like, she's not always that fun. But like, Mm -hmm. I think it's nice that... uh, not everyone gets what they need with Krakoa, but it like allows a lot for people who haven't always had a lot, like the Morlocks. Like they don't need to assimilate. They don't need to pretend to be normal when they can't. They can just be and have fun. And Mask can play golf in Rio Verde. God, it's yes. great. Yeah. Um, like I love it. Like the Morlocks are of occupying a fancy golf, like clothes, like white, like, what is it? Like a closed, a gated community, like golf town in Arizona. Like, so they're not even actually on Krakoa. And they, I think it's interesting that they choose to not physically be there, but they're definitely able to fund that through the system. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I've, yeah, I enjoyed Callisto throughout a lot. Her interactions with Emma, her, all the interactions really, I was like thinking about, Oh, I like Storm's interactions with Emma and with Kate and with Callisto. And I like Callisto's interactions with Emma and Jumbo and with Storm. Like, it's, there's just great dialogue in this and great characterization. Uh, Jumbo Carnation and Callisto is Dyke Femme Solidarity. Like, Jumbo Carnation is like the definitely the most feminine gay X Men character, right? Like, they just yeah. don't let there be really hyper femme men. Um, and Jumper Carnation is a fashion designer and a mutant um, who like was killed in like a mutant bashing or gay bashing. I actually don't remember. I, I didn't read the comics where that happened in. And then it was brought back by Emma because Emma is like, we need a fashion designer. Like, let's make sure that we bring Jumbo back right now, now, now. And, you know, his whole interaction with Callisto is like such a fun, like queer, like, yeah, like, you know, like gay man, gay woman, like badass, like dynamic and moment. And it's also just good to have somebody remember Jumbo Carnation and like remember that, you know, like mutants can have different kinds of powers that aren't used for fighting and are used for other kinds of cool stuff, too. Yeah, well, I think like I I think it's House of X5 where Magneto is talking about like, you know, now that we're not now that we're living in quote unquote peace times. Mm-hmm. We get we get to kind of recontextualize the way that we value mutation. And I think like it played out in that series with I think Egg, or people yeah. remember him as Gold Balls, um, who is a trans man. Just gonna continue oh. to lobby for that. Yeah. I get uh, it. But like I just think it's interesting that like one of the strengths of Dawn of X has been to constantly reframe mutation in a way that challenges superhero comic books as a medium like 
we love to see mutations that are cool and explosive and are like visually active. But I think Dawn of X is really like allowing us to explore what characters and their gifts can be without having to be combat or like conflict driven. And I think the way that extends to Callisto is like, it's a Yeah. Like I think it's like we said, I think it's great to see Callisto having fun. Like it's, it's mm-hmm. amazing what you can do with a character when you don't need to like constantly make them suffering furniture in somebody else's story <laughs> in the way yeah. that Callisto has historically been. Um, have y'all been, have y'all read Cable at all? The first issue? Yes. I read the first, just the first issue. That's all. Is that yeah, that's all, that's that's all, out, yeah. Cause there haven't been comics. We haven't had comics, what are, what are comics? Um, but anyway, <laughs> what are comics? Uh, it's been too long, but uh, there was like, Callisto was in that issue at the quarry, uh, that little oh, yeah. tournament they have. And also, uh, when you look at the record for the quarry, the first three fights or the last three fights were between Callisto and Pyro, Callisto and Fish, and then Callisto and Jumbo, uh, which I thought was a really nice like moment that Callisto has been training with Jumbo Carnation in the yes. quarry, teaching him how to use that knife, probably. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And who hasn't been handed a knife by their butch friends? Like, yeah, I feel I feel like that's a very relatable queer experience. So like, hey, you should probably protect yourself. Here's one of the at least six knives I have on me right now. Yeah, yeah, it's it totally. It's it, they really. That, thank you. You express that the way I wish I had. Um, and the other thing is that Stefano Caselli understands how Callisto is hot. Like, yes, <laughs> a lot of straight men or just men in general would like not understand. Like if you were said, hey, like Callisto, but make it hot, they would be like, OK, so you want her to have giant boobs. Right. And like not have no scars and like big, big hair. Like, no, no, that's not how she's hot. She's butch. Like and this artist is like, oh, oh, I get it. Like he's actually drawing her. Like, is in that way, that's like an actual hot, like, Bush woman. I, it's interesting because I don't think that the comic has, like, described her as, like, being a lesbian or having been in relationships with women. Like, it's just sort of still, like, subtextual, um, as far as, as far as I know. But this, this certainly brought it closer to, uh, than we've but seen nice so lesbians. far. Yeah, knife nice lesbians. lesbians. It's yeah, a flavor you know. of, of lesbian. I, I think mean, the but that's old- the other. <laughs> I was going to say, I think the only yeah time I've seen Callisto have fun before this was in that last run of Uncanny when she threw a knife in uh, either Scott or Logan's eye. <laughs> She's got to be the only person who got to have fun during that entire series. <laughs> in that entire run, because she, <laughs> she got to jam a knife. No, it was in Logan's eye. She jammed a knife in Logan's eye, I think. Uh, yeah, Fair. she was the only person who had any fun. Yeah. And maybe Dark Beast. Dark Beast got to have fun. <laughs> yeah, when, when he's having fun, though, it's usually a sign that nobody else is about to. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty That's much. good. That's really good. Speaking of having fun, um, you know, at first when I saw that Pyro was like... In the team, I was like, that's sort of random. And I guess it is still sort of random. But I, again, I appreciate his himbo energy, as, as you put it, Danny. Um, I, it is sort of just like, I don't know, I guess we need a bad guy to have him be part of the team, but sort of show that in a different context, a bad guy can be, you know, totally helpful and positive and like shouldn't be limited by his past that he may or may not have done. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, th- I think it's interesting because like specifically with 
character i mean i will be the first to say i didn't even know that there was more than one pyro so when they were talking about like him being the quote-unquote original that that part of continuity definitely flew flew over my head um apparently being an encyclopedia of continuity is it's a thing people want uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah it's interesting with villains quote-unquote villains of the kind of brotherhood of evil mutants um, and like some of those kind of adjacent teams in the way that like reclaiming villains from a very different period of time and publication is something I'm seeing a lot of right now Mm -hmm. in a really, really wonderful way. Um, And I think, I think has been really nice to see again, like Krakoa is constantly just like recontextualizing the relationships that mutants have together. Yeah. But like that tattoo parlor should not have let him get a full face tattoo without a prior consultation appointment. I like, mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I like, thought he was going to have to get it again after the last issue. And then I was like, oh, he didn't actually fully explode. Another great action moment. Oh, yeah. That whole that whole issue was. I'm always like really gullible when it comes to reading comics. So like that whole issue kept throwing me for for some unexpected reactions, like page by page was like, Emma is like staging a play. Uh, (laughs) And like, they're just mannequins and some kind of like David Lynch style theater drama. And then it like, you kind of metatextually pan out to understand like some of the telepathic elements and just like little things like that, I think are so interesting and nuanced. I just saw this and I have to bring this in. So apparently this particular pyro had died from the legacy virus. So I think that officially means that everybody on this team is gay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Wait, isn't one of the pyros gay? Definitely. Isn't this pyro oh, gay? Me? I thought this was the gay pyro. Oh, um, it doesn't say this on his, uh, what's it called? It doesn't say this on his um, Wikipedia page. I mean, we definitely have a very subtextually gay pyro in x-men the movie part two but um i i don't know but i'm just like oh, the no. fuck he He's died the from the legacy died. virus yeah, but, yeah, like, yeah he died from the legacy virus so that's so interesting that this is like he's the one that gets brought back and also specifically as a member of the brotherhood who i like don't i will not call them the brotherhood of evil it's just not me evil mutants they're just the brotherhood of mutants okay yeah. um speaking of different kinds of hats and villains and stuff. You know, the only characters in this book, other, well, sorry, <sighs> Jomo Carnation, obviously gay, but uh, the, the other characters for whom their queerness is not subtext, it is text and like Googleable by heterosexual people who never believe anything is gay right. is we have Bobby and Christian Frost. Um, and it was fun to see two gay men interacting with each other and flirting and also like actually coming off as like as as queer. Like there have been so many people who have done stuff with Bobby who don't seem to know how to write that. And or who Christian they Frost. haven't let write it very well. Yes, they have prevented gay men from. I mean, this is one of the things, right? I think like if anybody's allowed to make Kitty Pride officially bisexual and not just subtextually, it'll probably be Gary Dugan, since Marvel's all about letting straight men make characters canonically queer and not about letting actual queer people do that. I'm yeah. sure that that's entirely well intentioned, and that there's no biases there that we would have to unpack or deconstruct. And, you know. 
but I, you know, I appreciate, as, I, as I've said on the show, I appreciate the straight guys who are pushing to try to get as much as they can get in, but it's definitely unfair. Like they're allowed to get away with it and oh, like queer writers aren't. Yeah. No, but I mean, they, I, you know, and I always go back to like Cinna's run on Iceman mm-hmm. where I think like, you can feel you can feel the editorial struggle in that book where you know like page by page you can tell Cinna is making concessions about the story about Bobby that he's going to tell and that entirely changes the characterization of Bobby through that story um mm-hmm. in a really tragic way i do like yeah it's it's nice to see that like there are folks who don't have these experiences who can still write really meaningful stories and like yeah christian and bobby it's also so it's very casual which like as as a sensitivity reader somebody who like interacts with people who come more of the i'm an ally to this group or hoping to be an ally to this group kind of conversation like the feedback i'm always giving people is just make it way more casual like please don't describe a kiss between two gay men for exactly three pages when the dialogue between them took a page. Uh, and and I then think, they said, yes, queen, while their yeah. tongues were intermingled. Yeah. <laughs> while, ah. while RuPaul played in the background. Was fracking in the background. Covered in leather and studs. It's like, no, like, they're just like Christians in a bathrobe and they're like hanging out by the piano having some coffee. And it's like, it's normalizing in a way that I think sometimes queerness in comic books can fail to be because of because of the lack that writers are working against. Like there can mm-hmm. be an understandable desire from those writers to to really drive it home and to like kind of speak to those heterosexual audiences who, you know, if if a character doesn't turn into the camera and say like, you know, <laughs> I definitely fuck dudes, then like then they're not gay um to those to those audiences so it's nice to see like a very casual depiction of queerness in a comic and it's just there and positive and doesn't need to be doesn't need to be held it doesn't need to hold the hot the placid hold the Mm -hmm. plot hostage in order to demonstrate queerness I also like how, like, the piano of his, the piano, the, the, one of like the new ship that Christian Frost is building. He's like, the, the, today the helm was a piano. Mm. Like, that is a very gay ship, yeah. literally. <laughs> um, and I, it's creative. That's science fiction. Like, like, why can't that be the case, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I want to talk with you guys about some of the villains in this book, oh. which specifically the Shaws actually like I, this comic is definitely uses a lot of dialogue that would have been from a flyer for Occupy. Like Shaw talks about how, you know, the humans um, control the humans. 1% controls 90% of the wealth. And he's of course means this in a good way because he's evil, but like that Shaw knows these things and is using them. And he says in five years, I will see, I will oversee the largest transfer of wealth the world has ever known. Um, and he says that humans aren't scared of him the way they're scared of like other mutants is because he is about money the way they're about money. And so that's why the humans will deal with him. And I'm like, that's so interesting. What, what do you guys think about Shaw and Shinobi and P- 
Pater, the father of the Shaw family. I have been reading, in in talking about mutant justice, Shaw is like one of the most interesting inclusions in Krakoa, specifically Mm -hmm. as like a holder of power. And so like this has literally been what I've written about all day long is just like, Shaw's a terrible piece of shit. (laughs) Should he he really be given that position of authority? No. Absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah, that is one of the things that's been most upsetting to me is like, you know, Magneto is a completely different story than someone like Shaw. And like, I totally get what the comics are doing. I mean, obviously, you know, not just, not just cause Magneto was right, but like for a number of reasons. Right. Um, so it's, it, I that. totally, I totally get and appreciate the sort of real politique that, you know, Hickman is doing by having villains on the quiet council. And like, it's, it's very interesting, but definitely like we really needed to dig into the specifics of what it means for Shaw to be. And this is the comic where that is happening. Yeah. I mean like Shaw, Shaw's personal politics border on like the kind of laughable ideology of like anarcho-capitalism. And like, he just has always represented this like radical self-interest but with a complete rejection of any form of regulation over his ability to like organize resources and delegate power. And like, it's, it's interesting because I think one of the biggest critiques of Krakoa that will come out of Marauders is the fact that like by, by allowing Sebastian Shaw to even step foot on Krakoa, there's some, there's already some inherent, uh, ways that that like problematizes the safety of people like Emma Frost and Jean Grey who've been previously victimized by him. Uh, the fact that they all shared seats on a council together is even more problematic. But like Shaw has been able to like massively undermine Krakoan diplomacy on a scale that is like I, I know that Sinister they've planted seeds and powers of extra sinister to kind of have be involved in or play a role in the undoing of Krakoan society eventually. But like, mm-hmm. you know, Shaw is wrapped up in sending out, you know, either fake or ineffective Krakoan drugs. He is conspiring with the government of Madripoor. He is conspiring with the Russian uh, government, or at least offshoots of the Russian government that are, you know, aggressively entwined with Hominus of Gurendi, who like, are definitely meant to kind of symbolize this like rising fascist youth element and like Shaw being given no oversight being subject to no accountability has like aggressively undermined Krakoan diplomacy and also Mm -hmm. I think we're gonna continue to see a body count form like as we've said Kate dies sorry for anyone who you know listening to this before they knew that, that yeah, I guess. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, like, it's it's interesting because by one single inclusion onto the Quiet Council being shot, like, Xavier has become the architect of his own destruction. Like, Shaw is, issue by issue, coming closer and closer to, like, fully destabilizing the Krakoa. Yeah. Like even just as a nation state, he is, he is like working towards something that will fly in the face of everything that Krakoa has kind of strived to build. 
Yeah. Yeah, he sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bad dude. Like, sorry. sorry. And like, sorry. he's not getting... So, I mean, it, yeah, he yeah. sucks. And he's not getting monitored closely enough is the thing. Like, I oh. get you have to give him a position of power to get him to work with you, but like, why is he not being spied on constantly? Right. Like, I mean, you know, restorative justice models would argue that... <laughs> He should be subject to oversight by a community panel for at least, you know, a year or two. Like, it's just, it's wild that Xavier could take a figure like Sebastian Shaw and be like, mm. let's just Dude, see what happens. Like, yeah. yeah, we don't, we're not going to hold anything against him from when he like massively undermined the mutant cause for many, many years. I'm sure he's chill now. You know, we'll give like him, we'll yeah. give him a house and he'll be chill. <laughs> He's the he's the capitalist villain of Marvel, right? Like, he really is one of the consistent capitalist bad guys, and he's just the embodiment of sexism. So having him be like the main villain of this book is a really good is a really good fit. I'm curious to see where it'll end up landing with um, Shinobi, who's like whole thing. Like the, the reason you know he's him is because he still wants to kill his dad. Is um, is like just right on. But I also yeah. really got like. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, as a as an Asian who has a very complicated relationship with her white dad, I can very much relate to Shinobi Shaw. I I kind of stand Shinobi Shaw a little bit. Uh, I'm I really like that their relationship is so trite and complicated in here. Like it's not trite, trite's the wrong word, but like fraught, fraught and complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that you still just like. He really is the wild card of this series, in my opinion. Like, you don't know where he really stands or what he is going to do in the end of it all. I also, like, when Shaw is drowning Kitty, sorry, when Shaw is drowning Kate, he calls her a half mutant, which again is just like, can you be any more, like, bisexual coded in the text? Like, no, you can't be. And that he would call her that and that would be the way he would describe how she can't use the gates is like very telling like that this is very this is all part of her being coded as bisexual and him being coded as you know well he's not coded he's just fucking evil and of course he's a bigot no, he so, just there you go. yeah yeah <laughs> i'm just gonna get a shirt that says um, sebastian shaw sucks yeah, he's yeah. so he's just the fucking worst. I actually noticed the way they're drawing his facial hair; it really leaves the 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 the, 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 the positive space of his face versus the negative space of his black facial hair. He's sort of a skull, the same way that the skull logo is the Marauders logo. So, I mean, it's consistent with the way his mega mutton chops have been done in the past, but they haven't always quite been as we are leaving the remaining remaining space on your face as um a skull shape as they are oh, right now it really now. is yeah i'm right? looking at a photo of him and i'm like wow that is spot on that's a great observation yeah thank you damn <laughs> so right now uh kitty is dead for the time being um i mean i'm sure they're going to bring her back i i don't know that i f- feel super confident as to when do you guys have strong feelings about when and how kitty should return kate should return I'm like, so when, uh, when Emma goes in to check on the resurrection, obviously we're in spoilers, I know, but I just keep feeling like this is like, these are like big yeah, things, but yeah. anyway. Spoilers like for the uh, end of the series. It feels, yeah. 
Yeah. So when Emma goes in to check, like she wants to talk to the five, but Xavier's like stops her from talking to the five. I don't know. My, I, my theory of why uh, Kate can't go through the gates is I think related to like inside, inside baseball stuff with uh, Xavier. And like, there's some things we're just not being told. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that like Xavier has anything against Kate. I just think either him or Moira has plans involving Kate that means she can't go through the gates right now. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I mean, or get I, resurrected properly. Yeah, I, I, oof. I'm going to be careful not to say a lot of things because when you speculate on a theory, you can hear the keystrokes as people form angry comments. So I'm going to try to choose my words very diligently. Um, Kate has always been involved in all, like whenever alternate universes establish a kind of bubble of continuity, whether it's like days of future past or age of X, um, a pocket universe that existed within legions creation. Um, but like in, in, a lot of alternate universes, Kate has always been the linchpin for in some way either being part of the resolution or solution to avoiding that alternate universe. Hmm. Or like in the case of Age of X, she is involved in kind of like pulling the wool from over everyone's eyes by going beyond the bubble and like spoilers for age of x i guess i mean it's like a very old story and if you haven't read yeah, it yeah there's no such thing God, as a spoiler it's wild that. that that's old now jeez i know <laughs> i know um anyway go on sorry no it's it's true um it was a very old new comic but i i have a feeling that it i i've always in my head assumed that this is moira's call because again she is Kate is rejected by Krakoa. She is not just not welcome. She is disinvited from Krakoa. Um, and I think, I think it's very likely that Kate's resurrection would in some way be undermined by Moira. Hmm. Um, but again, that's just my speculation. I, I can't see another reason why the five would have tried multiple times and failed to bring back Kate. I know some folks have kind of fallen onto the defense of like, Oh, well, Kate's powers of intangibility would make it like, no, no. I mean, like the five have brought mutants back with that. Yeah. Like they brought back some, some folks with pretty complex (laughs) mutations. Uh, So I bet they could nail Kate pride pretty uh, well. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Those, that choice of words. I mean, They'd nail Kate Pride. They could, <laughs> and maybe they will. They will. <laughs> no. Um, I will say on like a meta textual level, it's been interesting for Kate Pride to be dead for this long, um, because of the delay in publication. I think like, I don't know. This is speculation, but I imagine Kate's pride will be resolved within like two or three issues, or at least addressed in terms of like why they can't resurrect her within two or three issues. But the fact that like we've lived with Kate being dead as a fan base for so long has kind of made the stakes of that death feel <laughs> real. Um, mm-hmm. 
in an interesting way because like you know the revolving door of death in comics is really it under it, like it undermines so much of the impact of this death that i think the text has clearly tried to work against in a way where people are constantly mm. being like well we don't know if the resurrection protocols will work for kate and like they they constantly are planting seeds of doubt in the reader's mind about whether or not Kate could be resurrected. And I think that that is that storytelling says that, you know, if they're going to say those things, that's going to present a very clear and present obstacle that will have to be overcome at some point. But mm-hmm. I, yeah, no, it, it is interesting to live with this death and for this death to feel like it has stakes. Cause you know, like comics could be, as you know, as of today, they're now not delayed indefinitely. Like we'll get Marauders issue ten, I think, in, on May twenty seventh. But it's hopefully, it's a, yeah. <laughs> I know. When I read that, I was like, ah, you know, I'll see that when it's on my doorstep. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm always torn. Like I think you know, there's some deaths that have to last for a certain amount of time to matter. Like I was a big fan of, I'm a big fan of Jean Grey and I was a big fan of Jean Grey staying dead for like a long time when she did after Grant Morrison killed her, you know, it made it more powerful. I I don't want to see Kitty off the playing board for a super long time. No, no, um, no firing her into a giant bullet in space. No drowning her. None of it. If is that, that was your favorite part of Joss Whedon's run, right? You know, if you ever want to summarize why I hate Joss Whedon, it is like, that is, that among the choices for Kitty Pride to exit that run, like, there is such hate and poison behind the choice to send somebody in a space bullet rocketing across the galaxy, the universe, the multiverse even. Um, And that's just like, that's a really great, crystallization of how i feel like joss whedon treated uh kitty pride is just like we'll we'll use her to kind of take some shots and sort of either covertly or overtly slut shame emma and then we'll send her off in space until yeah i don't think taking kate off the board is ever a good idea she is such an integral part of like i mean for an extended period of time i think her death Mm -hmm. in this is very meaningful and can like it's giving us great story but yeah. like, she's such an, for someone who's not one of the original five, she is such an integral part of the X-Men and has been the heart of it for like, just one of the many, the X-Men have a lot of hearts uh, for many <laughs> years. And I just think she's just like such a core part of the X universe at this point. Um, so I don't think she'll stay dead for too long. And this is the only time she's really been allowed to have fun, right? Like, I don't want it to be like, oh, Kitty finally got to have fun and now she's going to die for it. Like, that would not be a fun thing for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. But I, I think I think fans at least have been, I don't want to get too much into a conversation about how fans react to things or don't, but it feels like fans have been understanding about, like, not, like, yelling at, jerry like to bring her back and like say it's offensive that she died or anything like that sort of like there was an issue of um when people were really upset about somebody there was there was another series where character died where it was clearly not going to be permanent and people were screaming about it at the writer and 
I was like, this is clearly not permanent. And why are you behaving like this? As much, you know, I hate barrier gaze also. I also don't think this character, this person is going to do barrier gaze. Like, and I was correct. It just took two issues. Like, this is kind of like, feels like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, I think Kate Pride's death. I mean, I, it's just, it's an interesting choice of if you want to make death feel like it has stakes again um, in this new kind of status quo like Kate is a really interesting choice in exactly that regard um as Chingy said like Kate is Kate has been the heart of the X-Men like they made Kate the leader of X-Men gold um and schools yeah yeah and like I mean and going back to like Kate having fun like I I think so much of X-Men gold was Kate kind of having to be the trauma adult of like, okay, it's like somebody has to lead this team. Like mutants do need a leader, I guess, I guess me. Um, And like, there was, there was a lot of stuff in X-Men Gold that I really didn't find to be that enjoyable. But one of the things I thought was interesting was just, I felt like it was very tangible, just how like taxed Kate was by, holding positions of authority and like leadership and like what that took from her. And it's nice to see her like, you know, like just get super shit faced, go, you know, go start a fight with a bunch of fascists, save some mutants, get some tattoos and like, you know, get some smooches. Like it's, it's nice to see like a book this intense also give Kate the space to like not have to perform this perfect social role 24 seven. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I it's, it's been really fun having Kate like get to have fun and get to lead a team that isn't like her basically like not babysitting, but like parenting all these younger mutants. Like it's her with her peers, like on a boat. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, she's a leader specifically and not a mentor or teacher. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's, right. That, that's the important distinction. Like she's, she doesn't have to teach them anything. She gets to lead them. And as a fellow Jewish person with tattoos, I was excited to have Katie Pride also be a Jewish person with tattoos because that's a thing. We, we do that a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and this, 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 you know, this book doesn't forget that she's Jewish either. Like when she has the exchange with hate monger and he's wearing his like total KKK freak outfit, you know, Kitty says, I was afraid of men like you before I knew I was a mutant. I'm not afraid of you anymore. It was a totally badass line. Um, and, and like important and powerful to, to say in here. Yeah. I will say, I hope when they resurrect Kate, maybe, uh, her curly hair will come back. <laughs> we'll be resurrected yeah. with her. <laughs> I know, right? That could totally. Oh man, I have. Were you guys? You guys were probably a part of the thread that we were all on on Twitter talking about the importance of Kate, Kate Pride's curly hair, weren't we? I have. Well, I won't lead us down that path right now, but I do yeah, think sorry. it's. it's <laughs> no, don't apologize because it actually. I mean, it's not totally off topic. I, I, I do think that it's that you know Kate Pride was introduced with frizzy hair which is not a thing that we get to have on characters who are 
characterized as being desirable in any way in like any media and that people eventually decided that she couldn't do that anymore. Like, I'm not saying that she wouldn't have a phase where she was getting herself some keratin treatments and straightens because like we've all been through that. But I feel like in this moment, she might be like, no, I'm going to have my natural hair. And um, that would be nice. And the salt water would be good for those curls. Like, I mean, (laughs) all great points being made. So I think we're going to wrap up. Are there things that you guys want to hit that we have not mentioned yet? I'm trying to think. We talked about Callisto and that was most important to me. Yeah. Yeah. I will say for Callisto, it's Callisto. Trying to make sure I don't lose the thought. Callisto's depiction in, in Marauders is really, it's really interesting on a visual level to kind of, tail back to something we were talking about in terms of like making Callisto hot but like not aggressively sexualized or like I kind of always go back to that like little snippet of Claremont interview where he was like yeah like Callisto is kind of like a visual love letter to Joan Jett and like just getting that like aggressive kind of like not sure if she's gonna like punch you or give you a noogie kind of hotness is just like it's so it's so in the way that like just the gestures of of Callisto in every panel are kind of like laid out it's wonderful yeah yeah and I think it's also just so important that that the um the Morlocks aren't forgotten yeah in a story that's about that's called Marauders because the Morlocks were the mutants who were massacred by the Marauders in the, you know in the 80s um, and you, I think you can't really have a Marvel comic, an X-Men comics history that uses those terms and doesn't address that together. Yeah. Especially because so far, like the two more locks that we've seen in Marauders are Mask and Callisto, who like between the two of them have a really like turbulent past of abuse and manipulation asymmetrically, like largely just Mask abusing and gaslighting and manipulating Callisto and it is it is really interesting to see those two be now the face of the Morlocks and how they Mm. interface with Krakoa Um, yeah I would definitely agree with that I mean and Mask is a bad person like you know Callisto is definitely not not, yeah no Mask is not a good dude Callisto is chill Mask uh you know maybe Maybe it could deal with some empathy mapping exercises or something. I don't know. Hopefully they right, have right. that in the retirement community. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, oh, my maybe, gosh. Maybe golf will chill him right the hell out. Yeah, he'll be like, you know what? I was an asshole. Yeah, that tentacle thing, that thing where I made your face not your own and you couldn't recognize yourself. And yeah, that was, was awful. Really, Why did I do that? That sucked, right? Yeah. Just really straightforward therapy. Yeah. Mask also seems like the kind of guy who, like, he will let Callisto probably kill him at least once or twice to kind of, like, make up for it. Like, he seems like... Yeah. You know, like, all right, right, that was fair. Yeah. Yeah. You can get a couple deaths in and, you know, the five will take care of me. Just don't tell me when they're coming. Just don't let me see him coming, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you both for joining me. Where can our listeners find more of you online? Chingy. I am Chingy Nia. I'm at the gay Chingy on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on Twitter a lot more these days. Um, and I right now am contributing pretty semi-regularly to Kotaku.com. 
Uh, right now I'm working on a review of the new Ghost in the Shell series. Ooh. I, I'm literally, I'm glued to my Twitter feed to see when that comes my way. <laughs> I'm so excited for that. It, it, it's not out yet, right? No. No, wait, no, it is out. It is? Oh. It's, out in, uh, it's out in the U.S. Oh, no, your, oh. your article. Your article. Oh, okay. I was like, oh. I was like, oh, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I didn't. Okay, thank you for the heads up. Yeah, yeah a friend yeah. of mine wrote one of the, a friend of mine uh, worked on that. Okay, cool. Nice. And um, uh, Danny, where can our listeners find more of your work? Um, I am queer buzzkill on Twitter. Uh, my at is sjw underscore laura kinney. You can tell who my favorite character probably is. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> yeah, it's a shame she got vaulted, but such is yeah. life. Um, I write over at uh, Women Write About Comics, also known as WAC, uh, and, <laughs> and Graphic Policy. Uh, I'm currently writing a piece on restorative justice and community organizing as related to Hellions, that one issue Such that a good we idea. got. Mm-hmm, uh, so mm-hmm. check that out. That'll be coming through with Graphic Policy. Uh, so yeah. That makes me so happy. You're writing pieces about X-Men, the new books that are just really rooted in the sort of political and social concerns that Graphic Policy Radio is all about. And it's so cool to have you just taking that on and just doing this really in-depth work on it. So thank you for your service to the fandom. (laughs) Thank you. And 